Welcome to the Dead Author Society. Frank Herbert, February 11th, 1986. Rest in peace. Dune Messiah Chapter 12 He loathed his city. Rage rooted in boredom, flickered and simmered down within him, nurtured by decisions that couldn't be avoided. He knew which path his feet must follow. He'd seen it enough times, hadn't he? Seen it. Once. Long ago. He thought of himself as an inventor of government, but the invention had fallen into old patterns. It was like some hideous contrivance with plastic memory. Shape it any way you wanted, but relax for a moment, and it snapped into the ancient forms. Forces at work beyond his reach in human breasts eluded and defied him. Paul stared out across the rooftops what treasures of untrammeled life lay beneath these roofs. He glimpsed leaf green places, open plantings amidst the chalk red and gold of the roofs. Green, the gift of Maudib and his water. Orchards and groves lay within his view, open plantings to rival those fabled Lebanon. Maldiv spins water like a madman, Fremen said. Paul put his hands over his eyes. The moon fell. He dropped his hands, stared at his metropolis with clarified vision. Buildings took on an aura of monstrous imperial barbarity. They stood enormous and bright beneath the northern sun. Colossi. Every extravagance of architecture, a demented history, could produce lay within his view. Terraces of mesa proportion, squares as large as some cities, parks, premises, bits of cultured wilderness, Superb artistry abutted inexplicable prodigies of dismal tastelessness. Details impressed themselves upon him. A postern out of most ancient Baghdad. A dome dreamed in mythical Damascus. An arch from the low gravity of Atar. Harmonious elevations and queer depths. All created in effect of unrivaled magnificence. A moon, a moon, a moon. Frustration tangled him. He felt the pressure of mass unconscious, that burgeoning sweep of humankind across his universe. It rushed upon him with a force like a gigantic tidal bore. He sensed the vast migrations at work in human affairs. 
eddies, currents, gene flows. No dams of abstinence, no seizures of impotence, nor maledictions could stop it. Maudib's jihad was less than an eye blink in this larger movement. The Bene Gesserit swimming in this tide, that corporate entity trading in genes, was trapped in the torrent as he was. Visions of a falling moon must be measured against other legends, other visions in a universe where even the seemingly eternal stars waned, flickered, died. What mattered? A single moon in such a universe. Far within his fortress citadel, so deep within that, the sound sometimes lost itself in the flow of city noises. A ten-string vababa tinkled with a song of the jihad, a lament for a woman left behind on Arrakis. Her hips are dunes carved by the wind. Her eyes shine like summer heat. Two braids of hair hang down her back. Rich with water rings her hair. My hands remember her skin. Fragrant as amber, flower scented. Eyelids tremble with memories. I am stricken by love's white flame. The song sickened him. A tune for stupid creatures lost in sentimentality as well sing to the dune-impregnated corpse Alia had seen. The figure moved in shadows of the balconies grill work, Paul whirled. The gula emerged into the sun's flare. His metal eyes glittered. Is it Duncan, Idaho? Or the man called Hate? Paul asked. Gula came to a stop two paces from him. Which would my lord prefer? The voice carried a soft ring of caution. Blazes and Sunni, Paul said bitterly. Meanings within meanings. What could a Sunni philosopher say or do to change one jot of the reality unrolling before them at this instant? My lord is troubled. Paul turned away, stared at the shield wall's distant scarp, saw wind-carved arches and buttresses, terrible mimicry of his city. Nature playing a joke on him. See what I can build. He recognized a slash in the distant massive, a place sand spilled from a crevasse and thought. There, right there we fought Sadakar. What troubles my lord? The gula asked. A vision. Paul whispered. Ah, when the Tlaloc so first awakened me, I had visions. I was restless, lonely, not 
really knowing I was lonely not then. My visions reveal nothing. The Telelak suit told me I was an intrusion of the flesh, which men and ghoulas all suffer. A sickness no more. Paul turned, studied the ghoulas eyes, those pitted, steely balls without expression. What visions did those eyes see? Duncan. Duncan. Paul whispered. I am called hate. I saw a moon fall. Paul said. It was gone. Destroyed. I heard a great hissing. The earth shook. You are drunk on too much time, the ghoula said. I ask for the Zinsuni and get the Mintat, Paul said. Very well. Play my vision through your logic, Mintat. Analyze it and reduce it to mere words laid out for burial. Burial indeed, the ghoula said. You run from death. You strain at the next instant, refuse to live here and now. Augury, what a crutch for an emperor. Paul found himself fascinated by a well-remembered mole on the ghoulah's chin. Trying to live in this future, the ghoulah said. Do you give substance to such a future? Do you make it real? If I go the way of my vision future, I'll be alive then. Paul muttered. What makes you think I want to live there? The ghoulish shrugged. You asked me for a substantial answer. Where is there substance in a universe composed of events? Paul asked. Is there a final answer? Doesn't each solution produce new questions? You've digested so much time, you have delusions of immortality. The ghoula said, even your empire, my lord, must live its time and die. Don't parade smoke blackened altars before me, Paul growled. I've heard enough sad histories of gods and messiahs. Why should I need special powers to forecast ruins of my own like all those others? The lowliest servant of my kitchens could do this. He shook his head. The moon fell. You've not brought your mind to rest at its beginning, the ghoulah said. Is that how you destroy me? Paul demanded. Prevent me from collecting my thoughts. Can you collect chaos? The ghoula asked. We Zin Sunni say. Not collecting, that is the ultimate gathering. What can you gather without gathering yourself? I'm deviled by a vision, and you spew nonsense. Paul raged. What do you know of prescience? I've seen the oracle at work, the ghoulah said. I 
I've seen those who seek signs and omens for their individual destiny. They fear what they seek. My falling moon is real, Paul whispered. He took a trembling breath. It moves. It moves. Men always fear things which move by themselves. The Gula said, You fear your own powers. Things fall into your head from nowhere. When they fall out, where do they go? You comfort me with thorns. Paul growled. An inner illumination came over the Gula's face. For a moment, it became pure Duncan, Idaho. I give you what comfort I can, he said. Paul wondered if that momentary spasm had the Gula felt grief which his mind rejected. Had hate put down a vision of his own? My moon has a name. Paul whispered. He let the vision flow over him then. Though his whole being shrieked, no sound escaped him. He was afraid to speak, fearful that his voice might betray him. The air of this terrifying future was thick with Chani's absence. Flesh had cried in ecstasy. Eyes that had burned him with their desire. The voice that had charmed him because it played no tricks of subtle control. All gone. Back into the water and the sand. Slowly, Paul turned away, looked out at the present, the plaza before Ali's temple. Three shaven-headed pilgrims entered from the processional avenue. They wore grimy yellow robes and hurried their heads bent against the afternoon's wind. One walked with a limp, dragging his left foot. They beat their way against the wind, rounded a corner, and were gone from his sight. Just as his moon would go, they were gone. Still his vision lay before him. His terrible purpose gave him no choice. The flesh surrenders itself. He thought, Eternity takes back its own. Our bodies stirred these waters briefly, danced with a certain intoxication before the love of life and self dealt with a few strange ideas, then submitted to the instruments of time. What can we say of this? I occurred. I am not, yet, I occurred. You do not beg the sun for mercy. Maudib's travail from the Stilka commentary. One moment of incompetence can be fatal. The Reverend Mother Gaius Helen Mohim reminded herself. She hobbled along apparently unconcerned within a ring of Fremen guards. 
one of those behind her. She knew was a deaf mute immune to any wiles of voice. No doubt he'd been charged to kill her at the slightest provocation. Why had Paul summoned her? She wondered, was he about to pass sentence? She remembered the day long ago when she tested him. The child Quizod Sadarak. He was a deep one. Damn his mother for all eternity. It was her fault the Bene Gesserit had lost their hold on this gene line. Silence surged along the vaulted passages ahead of her entourage. She sensed the word being passed. Paul would hear the silence. He'd know of her coming before it was announced. She didn't delude herself with ideas that her powers exceeded his. Damn him. She begrudged the burdens age had imposed on her. The aching joints. Responses not as quick as once they'd been. Muscles not as elastic as the whip cords of her youth. A long day lay before her in a long life. She'd spent this day with the Dune Tarot in a fruitless search for some clue to her own fate. But the cards were sluggish. The guards herded her around a corner into another of the seemingly endless vaulted passages. Triangular meta-glass windows on her left gave a view upward to trellised vines and indigo flowers and deep shadows cast by the afternoon sun. Tiles lay underfoot. Figures of water creatures from exotic plants. Water reminders everywhere. Wealth. Riches. Robed figures passed across another hall in front of her, cast covert glances at the Reverend Mother. Recognition was obvious in their manner, and tension. She kept her attention on the sharp hairline of the guard immediately in front. Young flesh, pink creases, at the uniform collar. The immensity of this eager citadel began to impress her. Passages. Passages. They passed an open doorway from which emerged the sound of timber and flute playing softly. Elder music. A glance showed her blue and blue, feminine eyes staring from the room. She sensed in them the ferment of legendary revolts stirring in wild genes. There lay the measure of her personal burden. She knew Athena Gesserit could not escape awareness of the genes and their possibilities. She was touched by a feeling of loss. That stubborn fool of an Atreides. How could he deny the jewels of 
posterity within his loins. A Kwisat Sadrach, born out of this time true, but real, as real as his abomination of a sister. There lay a dangerous unknown. A wild reverend mother spawned without benegesserate inhibitions, holding no loyalty to orderly development of the genes. She shared her brother's powers, no doubt. And more. The size of the citadel began to oppress her. Would the passages never end? The place reeked of terrifying physical power. No planet, no civilization in all human history had ever before seen such man-made immensity. A dozen ancient cities could be hidden in its walls. They passed oval doors with winking lights. She recognized them for Ixian handiwork, pneumatic transport orifices. Why was she being marched all this distance then? The answer began to shape itself in her mind. To oppress her in preparation for this audience with the Emperor. A small clue, but it joined other subtle indications. The relative suppression and selection of her words by her escort. Traces of primitive shyness in their eyes when they called her Reverend Mother. The cold and bland essentially odorless nature of these halls, all combined to reveal much that a benegesserate could interpret. Paul wanted something from her. She concealed a feeling of elation. A bargaining lever existed. It remained only to find the nature of that lever and test its strength. Some levers that moved things greater than this citadel. The thinker's touch had been known to topple civilizations. The Reverend Mother reminded herself then of Saitail's assignment. When a creature has developed into one thing, he will choose death rather than change into his opposite. Passages through which she was being escorted grew larger by subtle stages. Tricks of arching, graduated amplification of pillared supports, displacement of the triangular windows by larger, oblong shapes. Ahead of her finally loomed double doors centered in the far wall of a tall antechamber. She sensed that the doors were very large and was forced to suppress a gasp as her trained awareness measured out the true proportions. The doorway stood at least 80 meters high, half that in width. As she approached with her escort, the door swung inward, an immense and silent movement of hidden machinery. She recognized more Ixian handiwork. Through the towering doorway she marched with her guards, 
into the grand reception hall of the Emperor Paul Atreides. Bow deep before who all people are dwarfed. Now she saw the effect of that popular saying at work. As she advanced toward Paul on the distant throne, the Reverend Mother found herself more impressed by the architectural subtleties of her surroundings than she was by the immensity. The space was large. It could have housed the entire citadel of any ruler in human history. The open sweep of the room said much about hidden structural forces balanced with nicety. Trusses supporting beams behind these walls and the faraway domed ceiling must surpass anything ever before attempted. Everything spoke of engineering genius. Without seeming to do so, the hall grew smaller at its far end, refusing to dwarf Paul on his throne centered on a dais. An untrained awareness, shocked by surrounding proportions, would see him at first as many times larger than his actual size. Colors played upon the unprotected psyche. Paul's green throne had been cut from a single Hagar emerald. It suggested growing things in, out of the Fremen mythos, reflected the morning color. It whispered that here sat he who could make you mourn, life and death in one symbol, the clever stress of opposites. Behind the throne, draperies cascaded in burnt warren, curried gold of dune earth and cinnamon flecks of melange. To a trained eye, the symbolism was obvious, but it contained hammer blows to beat down the uninitiated. Time played its role here. Reverend Mother measured the minutes required to approach the Imperial Presence at her hobbling pace. You had time to be cowed. Any tendency toward resentment would be squeezed out of you by the unbridled power which focused down upon your person. You might start the long march toward that throne as a human of dignity. But you ended the march as a gnat. Aides and attendants stood around the Emperor in a curiously ordered sequence. Attentive household guardsmen along the draped back wall. That abomination, Alia. Two steps below Paul and on his left hand, Stilger, the Imperial Lackey. A step directly below Alia. On the right, one step up from the floor of the hole, a solitary figure. The fleshly revenant of Duncan Idaho, the Gula. She marked older Fremen among the guardsmen, bearded nebs with still suit scars on their noses, sheathed Chris knives at their waists few Mala pistols, even some lace guns, 
those must be trusted men. She thought, who carry lays guns in Paul's presence? And he obviously wore the sheet generator. She could see the shimmering of its field around him. One burst of a lays gun into that field, and the entire citadel would be a hole in the ground. Her guard stopped ten paces from the foot of the dais, parted to open an unobstructed view of the Emperor. She noted now the absence of Chani and Erulian, wondered at that. He held no important audience without them, Salt was said. Paul nodded to her, silent, measuring. Immediately, she decided to take the offensive. Said, So the great Paul Atreides deigns to see the one he banished. Paul smiled wryly, thinking, she knows I want something from her. That knowledge had been inevitable, she being who she was. He recognized her powers. Bene Gesserit didn't become Reverend Mothers by chance. Shall we dispense with fencing? He asked. Would it be this easy? She wondered, and she said, Name the thing you want. Stilger stirred, cast a sharp glance at Paul. The Imperial Lackey didn't like her tone. Stilger wants me to send you away. Paul said, Not kill me. She asked. I would have expected something more direct from a famine nab. Stilger scowled, said, Often I must speak otherwise than I think. That is called diplomacy. Then let us dispense with diplomacy as well. She said, was it necessary to have me walk all that distance? I am an old woman. You had to be shown how callous I can be, Paul said. That way, you'll appreciate magnanimity. You dare such gulcheries with a Venegesserit? She asked. Gross actions carry their own messages, Paul said. She hesitated, weighed his words. So, he might yet dispense with her. Mostly, obviously, if she, if she would. Say what it is you want from me. She muttered. Alia glanced at her brother, nodded toward the draperies behind the throne. She knew Paul's reasoning in this, but 
disliked it all the same. Call it wild prophecy. She felt pregnant with reluctance to take part in this bargaining. You must be careful how you speak to me, old woman, Paul said. He called me old woman when he was a stripling. The Reverend Mother thought, does he remind me now of my hand in his vast? decision I made then must I remake it here. She felt the weight of decision, a physical thing that set her knees to trembling. Muscles cried their fatigue. It was a long walk, Paul said, and I can see that you're tired. We will retire to my private chamber behind the throne. You may sit there. He gave a hand signal to Stilger, Rose. Stilger and the Gula converged on her, helped her up the steps, followed Paul through a passage concealed by the draperies. She realized then why he had greeted her in the hall. Madame Show for the guards and Naps. He feared them then. No, no, he displayed kindly benevolence, daring such royals on a benedicerate. Or was it daring? She sensed another presence behind, glanced back to see Alia following. The younger woman's eyes held a brooding, baleful cast. The Reverend Mother shuddered. The private chamber at the end of the passage was a 20-meter cube of flas melt, yellow glow globes for light, the deep orange hangings of a desert still tent around the walls. It contained divins, soft cushions, a faint odor of melange, crystal water flagons on a low table. It felt cramped, tiny after the outer hall. Paul seated her on a divan, stood over her studying the ancient face, steely teeth, eyes that hid more than they revealed, deeply wrinkled skin. He indicated a water flagon. She shook her head, dislodging a wisp of gray hair. In a low voice, Paul said, I wish to bargain with you for the life of my beloved. Stilger cleared his throat. <coughs> Alia fingered the handle of the Chris knife sheathed at her neck. The Gula remained at the door, face impassive, metal eyes pointed at the air above the Reverend Mother's head. Have you had a vision of my hand and her death? The Reverend Mother asked. She kept her attention on the Gula, oddly disturbed by him. Why should she feel threatened by the Gula? He was a tool of the conspiracy. 
I know what it is you want from me. Paul said, avoiding her question. Then he only suspects, she thought. The Reverend Mother looked down, the tips of her shoes exposed by a fold of her robe. Black. Black. Shoes and robe showed marks for confinement. Stains. Wrinkles. She lifted her chin, met an angry glare in Paul's eyes. Elation surged through her. She hid the emotion behind pursed lips, slitted eyelids. What coin do you offer? She asked. listening to the Dead Authors Society. Be sure to follow for more content posted several days a week.